0: Taylor Lote is on a mission to teach busy professionals how they can invest in real estate without dealing with tenants, toilets, and termites. He highlights and distills the knowledge, experiences, and lessons of expert real estate investors through his podcast, YouTube channel, and email newsletter, Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. He believes that building passive streams of income is the best path to wealth generation, not the typical boring, don't have that $4 latte you enjoy twice a week. Enjoy your latte and buy some property. He has partnered in over $50 million in multifamily and self-storage investments as both a general partner with his company NT Capital LLC and passive investor through tax-advantaged retirement accounts. He invests remotely and never deals directly with tenants. In this episode, we talked to Taylor about how he invested in his first passive syndication using his self-directed IRA. The good and bad of investing from a self-directed retirement account, how investing passively led him to then become a general partner on a couple of apartment deals, and why he is focused on introducing real estate investing to the FIRE movement. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sunbelt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things. Things. And you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to RoadToFamilyFreedom.com slash storage. That's RoadToFamilyFreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you.
1: All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
0: Welcome to The Road to Family Freedom.
1: Hey, Neil. Great to talk with you again.
0: We we were discussing offline a couple of days ago that we, we have sort of kicked around the same circles for a couple of years now, but we had actually never actually spoken or met, so I'm happy to have you on the show. Yeah, it's so, great
1: to talk with you, and uh, I I don't know. I listened to an interview of yours with Barry Griffiths uh, recently, and that thought it was great. So folks that are listening to – that listen to your show should also go uh, check out – you on the interviewee side and
0: you know well i appreciate that and and i'll say definitely those of you who are interested in passive investing you should definitely check out taylor's passive wealth strategies podcast so all right so before we dig in a little deeper uh can you tell me a little bit about how you got into real estate
1: sure so i had a realization in my mid to early 20s that the kind of corporate path that i was on you know as a I went to school for chemical engineering, got into the engineering field and uh, was really you know well set up to be a busy professional and and do just fine in life. but I had a realization that the track with with salary earnings and everything that I was on just wasn't going to get me to the point that I wanted to get to, you know financially and from a from a wealth standpoint, really. So, I knew something had to change, and I found myself at a crossroads. The I, I may you may have some listeners that can relate to this, but the typical track that you hear about is you know, go to college, get a degree, and go get yourself a job. And I don't regret my decision to go to college and do engineering, anything like that. I would make that decision again. I would recommend it to anybody that thinks that's the right path for them. But once I got to that point, I still had that mentality to go to school. So the next step is some kind of graduate degree and MBA is a very common answer. So I dug into that and studied for the GMAT. I was traveling, I eventually switched to sales. I was traveling all over the country every week, which is really a grind. And uh, studying for the GMAT on planes and in hotel rooms, got home, took it. Ultimately, I got a new job, relocated to Virginia, in the engineering and sales field and in that interim i read rich dad poor dad and that really it it really got me thinking or it, it helped me realize that probably going to get another degree was not going to get me where i wanted to go because again business school you have a couple of avenues, really. You can go into marketing, but that really wasn't going to make me much more money. And it was going to saddle me with a hundred grand in student debt and a couple hundred grand in opportunity cost while going to school. There's consulting where you're traveling all the time. And I've done that and I hate it. I don't like being, I like traveling for fun, but I don't like traveling, you know, constantly seeing clients and everything uh, all across the country. The flying, I don't, I don't find that. I don't fly, find flying to be, uh,
0: when you do it for work, it loses its appeal pretty quickly.
1: It so does. It so does. But on the, on the flip side of that, to me, when I'm flying for, you know, business purposes and, uh, you know, something goes wrong, a flight's delayed. It's like, all right, well, you know, I'm not missing my vacation because, you know, flights delayed. Hopefully I don't have to reschedule anything with clients or whatever, but it's, I feel like it's more out of my hands, but so, in reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, right, he talks about real estate investing. That's kind of the the main thing. And I had been listening to a lot of investing podcasts, either you know sitting at a desk or on a plane and everything, listening to everything. The Motley Fool. Now, you know, Joe Fairless's podcast. He was he was one of the early guys. Bigger Pockets were were also very early. And I thought, well, I might as well I might as well learn about this stuff. And I started attending local meetups, uh, a local RIA group in particular, and began to learn about the various strategies, you know, flipping. Everybody probably knows about flipping. I have a, a hypothesis related to the popularity of flipping, by the way, but we'll, we'll set that aside. I uh, do uh,
0: We'll want to hear it at some point, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> we'll have to circle back to that. And then there's, right, you buy a house and then rent it out, kind of become a, an accidental landlord if you will, and just keep you know rotating through them, buying single families, the burst strategy, all those great things, which are fine. But after uh, digging into them, I, I just saw that you know these aren't for me because I don't, I don't, I don't want to manage tenants. I you know I'd rather have property managers in place. And from my perspective, the numbers just don't work that well on most single families or small multi multi families, particularly where I live in in Richmond. And this is years ago. The market's much hotter now, even that it just doesn't check out that you're, you're not going to have the margin, right. To, uh, to pay for a property manager. So I learned about ultimately, you know, larger multifamily, this is through, you know, reading a lot of books and listening to all these podcasts. And, uh, one day I don't remember the day, but you know, one day there was a, an episode, I think it was probably of Joe's show where he talked about syndication and, I was like that. Just that just hit all the buttons for me, right? Because it has the scale, the outsourcing of tasks that need to be done, but that I don't want to do, which is you know managing tenants and, and collections and evictions and all those kinds of things, uh, screening and uh, yeah, the scale, the remoteness of it that you can pretty much buy property anywhere based on you know whether or not the numbers work, and uh, just decided to dive in and then you know here we are a few years later
0: do you recall so you have never actually bought person to a, person a piece of investment property you don't own any rental properties you don't own any small multi-family thing like that so you only own nope, through. i decided
1: real. to skip all of that
0: okay yeah that's good no that, i i'm on board with
1: that so if i can uh inject the reasoning behind that right in looking where I lived, I, I looked at duplexes, I looked at triplexes, I looked at quads, I looked at the house hack, and they they just don't work in my market of Richmond, Virginia, in areas where I'd actually want to live because I don't want I didn't want to you know sacrifice uh, what I consider to be quality of life or anything like that just to you know bring in that amount of money. I would rather you know uh, live where I want and invest where the numbers work, where, where it makes sense. So,
0: yeah, that's, it's a common, uh, you know, it's a very smart way. I think for people to look at real estate investing is nowadays, you know, it used to be ever used to say, you have to invest where you live. You have to invest where you live. And while I, I agree with that in spirit, I think in the modern world, if you do it the right way, either with syndication or you build a team on the ground somewhere, um, it makes much more sense to just live where you want and invest where it makes sense. Uh, it's one of the ways that we, one of the reasons we often harp on the idea of location and dependence. You know, if you can get to a point where you've got, you know, an income coming in from, from somewhere where you don't have to be, then you can go live where you want. And it adds another level of leverage. Um, cause you can go live and live somewhere where, you know, your money goes a lot, a lot farther. So, accelerate your your path to financial independence.
1: Absolutely. And there's the, this, the concept of, you know, focus, follow one course until successful and, or whatever, you know, how you, however you want to break that down. And once I had set my sights on syndication as a strategy, uh, why would I go buy a quad? It's not, it's not my goal, right? So I'm not going to use my, you know, my precious time and energy on, something that's not taking me toward, or at least, you know, I don't think it's taking me toward what i want to do.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So what might stop someone from investing in let's say a large apartment syndication versus starting with a small multifamily? What might be some of the barriers to entry?
1: Sure. So, I mean, there, there are a number, right? A lot of folks, a lot of people who want to be active real estate investors, have trouble giving up control, and that's totally fine. I mean, uh, it's understandable. People don't want to, let's say, put their trust in a syndicator, even if they're, you know, great friends. They just want to say, I'll handle it myself, or, you know, I'm just going to pass on those opportunities. That's probably the biggest one that I found, is people just don't want to hand over control. As you get to some, it's fairly common for syndications also to have say fifty thousand or seventy five thousand dollars minimum investments, and uh, many investors, particularly younger investors who you know don't have as much in the bank to invest, that's just it's it's too much to put into a syndication, or maybe too much of a percentage of their net worth, or they don't have it. You know, I think that. That's a very good reason not to invest in a in a syndication, you know, it it is placing trust in a syndicator. It is placing trust in a property manager that they're going to treat you well, that they've done all their due diligence, they're not going to make a mistake, and if that's a you know, substantial percentage of your net worth by your own judgment, then 100%, you know, it absolutely makes sense not to do it.
0: Gotcha. You know, often one of the issues you run into is many syndications are open, only open to accredited investors. Um, you know, you just, a lot of people just don't have the the net worth or the um, they don't qual- they don't qualify as an accredited investor um, in your first talk to us a little bit about your first syndication that you invested in.
1: Sure. So the first investment I made in a syndication is actually a passive investment. Um, I had been attending uh, syndication you know seminars. one of them was the uh, real estate guys secrets of successful syndication. and you know that that first one in particular was transformative in a number of ways, but um, one of those ways was I met a number of syndicators and got on you know investor lists and I wasn't accredited, right and many syndicators will accept a not accredited sophisticated investor capital you know if you seem to be by their judgment uh, competent and able to understand you know check all the boxes of sophistication and also you know at, at the risk of being uh, crass or i don't know what you're not going to be a pain in the butt right because the the saying goes or the the kind of the uh common knowledge if you will goes that non-accredited sophisticated investors or people that only have say twenty five thousand dollars or thirty or forty thousand dollars to invest are gonna require a lot more of your attention and time for me that hasn't been my experience but you know that saying probably exists for a reason so I'll I'll leave it be yeah and right. uh you know we're lessons learned in that investment, uh, as well. We can get into that if, <laughs> if you want to.
0: Yeah. Let's, uh, well, let's dig into that one a little bit. What was the, what was the asset it was multifamily?
1: Yeah, it was two apartment complexes. My, uh, sorry. My, uh, green screen is getting, I'm going to try to reset my camera here with my hand. Maybe that'll work. Uh, shoot. Well, that color's all off. Anyway. Yeah, it was two apartment complexes, uh, in the Atlanta metro area. Um, C class, honestly, in hindsight, probably more like C minus class, like uh, just based on the geography. One of the benefits of passive syndication investing is, I've not seen these places. I've never been there. I mean, I've been to Atlanta, but I didn't. Uh, I went for other reasons uh, to look at other properties. I didn't go look at these. And uh, yeah, we owned those for a few years. They've since been exited and sold there were a number of problems with the, uh, the, the property manager, which the sponsor of that deal was, uh, Mark Kenny of, of think multifamily. He's been on my show to, uh, discuss that deal and the things that went wrong with it. So, you know, anything that I might say that has gone wrong is, has already been, you know, disclosed by him. Right. So I don't want to seem like, um, uh, talking out of school. Um, but if you want to get into what went wrong, um,
0: yeah Yeah, i'd love to um i mean most people like to come on real estate shows and talk about all the you know great deals they've been involved in i think it's actually more helpful often to hear the deals that didn't go quite so right um what was your investment in it
1: so i invested uh 35k out of a self-directed ira uh, which i you know i had always been a frugal guy i still am. And, um, had been building up those retirement funds and had a number of rollovers and, you know, I had cash too, but I thought I'll try this retirement account thing and, uh, see how that goes. And, you know, it went well, we still, we ended up making money despite the things that went wrong. I suspect that (laughs) I haven't done a a super detailed analysis, but I, I suspect that the reason we made money is a lot of it is due to the rising market and, and good timing, you know, um, I don't know that for sure, but I have a very strong suspicion. Gotcha.
0: Um and what uh, do you recall any details about how big these apartments
1: were and and
0: uh
1: Sure, so it's 202 uh, sorry, two units or two complexes. Uh 454 units total. Uh, One of the complexes I believe was around a hundred and then the other made up the balance. There was a a pretty big difference between the sizes of the two and they were in South Atlanta, kind of near the airport.
0: Would you recall what the purchase price was?
1: It was, it was hefty. I mean, it was not a small deal. Yeah. You know, it's,
0: it's the, the, the power of syndication that I try to, to explain to people is it allows you to get into deals that as an individual, you almost certainly would never be able to get into. You know, you drive around your community and you look at these large apartment buildings or these large office buildings or these large self-storage buildings, and, and you think to yourself, well, I wonder who owns those? Most of the time, it's not an individual. Most of the time, it's someone like Taylor and his partner in the syndication who's put the deal together and brought in uh, passive investors, in order so that they could all buy a
1: bigger deal.
0: All right. So, what went right and what went wrong?
1: Sure. So, what went right ultimately is you know we had the uh, the market wins behind us, right? So we did end up uh, ultimately making a profit on that on the deal, which is which is good. But what went wrong is um, you know and many of these are not really exactly. Uh, settled, you know, everything's over, right? But the the allegation is the property manager uh, maybe may have mishandled some funds or or mismanaged in some way, and that impacted the ability of the uh, the general partnership to distribute cash flows to investors. And really, behind that, what went wrong? Because it's not it's not out of the question for a property manager to need to be replaced. That's you kind of expect that when you go into these deals the deeper problem from my position as a passive investor was that the property manager was a general partner in the deal. So he had ownership in the company that owned the properties and there was a, ended up being a lengthy arbitration and everything uh, in that. But in removing him, you know, it, the, the general partnership had a, uh, other members of the general partnership had a hard time removing him from the deal and ultimately replacing that company. There was a, a fairly lengthy arbitration toward the end of it. At, at one point, uh, it actually appears that the gentleman who ran the property management company may have taken his own life. So the arbitration ended up being you know, with his estate. It's all settled now. It's all over. But to me, you know, as a a sponsor who's sponsoring my own deals now, okay, the takeaway is that we need to be able to replace property managers, you know, with absolutely very minimal disruption. And one of the important factors I think that's not considered enough is that they shouldn't have general partnership shares in the deal. Sometimes in the syndication space, that's presented as a way to get more buy-in from the property managers. And that may be true, but you know, if they're not buying in enough to just perform in the first place, then having an additional bit of ownership, I don't think, is is going to incentivize them sufficiently. And when you get to the point where you do need to replace them, it clearly just makes that harder. So I, I don't think uh that's the way to go. And that's not, you know, we haven't done that on uh any of my deals since yeah. then.
0: It's funny because that is that is sort of the conventional wisdom that I've heard out there is that you know when you bring the part the property manager in on the general partnership there's an alignment of interest and they've got they've got skin in the game to uh, to help you know uh, to help the asset perform but that's a great point is that you know if they're not already incentivized to perform just as a general you know as being a property manager. And the problem is once things go bad and now you want to get rid of them, there's added complication of now they're on the general partnership and it becomes a much stickier, uh, much stickier deal. So interesting. I, I had, it's the first time I, it's the first time I've heard of that one. It's very interesting. So you ended up in the positive on that. How long was the hold on that?
1: I think it was about two years. If I remember right, somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe a little over two years. Um, once that was, the the situation, if you will, was uncovered. It, it seems like that was, if memory serves, that was fairly early in our ownership period. So they were replaced and there was still value add work being performed. And then, you know, general, general partnership looked to sell ultimately, um, like I said, Mark's been on my show to uh, discuss this, so I don't think he minds me discussing this. And I, I think he handled it well. I think a lot of these, the, the, the bad things that happened, right, it, it goes against the common wisdom. I think we were set up to succeed. Like I said, ultimately, we did end up making money. We did better than breaking even. We didn't hit the projections, right, uh, naturally. They did a good job. I don't want to seem like I'm, um, you know, ragging on it or anything like that. Um, but
0: yeah, I actually uh, That's what happened. when talking to sponsors, I actually kind of like to ask them, you know, tell me about your deals that have gone bad and how you handled it. You know, and if they and if they go, we've never had a deal that's gone bad, you know. If they've done a lot, they've probably had something that's not not met projections, you know, and how they handled that is really going to be probably more of an indicator of what kind of sponsor you're dealing with than how they acted when things went well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, everybody's going to get some lumps in this game, uh, sponsoring deals and you know, if they haven't had any, or they're not saying they have have had any, then they haven't been in the game very long, or they're maybe not being truthful. Yeah. So, uh,
0: talk to me briefly about the good and the bad of investing from a self-directed IRA.
1: Sure, that's a that's a good question. So I think the, the good part of it, right, is that it allows you to get those funds, those retirement funds away from Wall Street. Now, I do still have Wall Street-based investments, but there are many folks out there who want to separate from Wall Street as much as possible. And I don't blame you, not one bit. So... That is a huge advantage. I think another one that's not that's kind of in that vein, it's not really talked about, is from an investor psychology standpoint, especially for somebody like me in their 30s, that's patient money, right? Because I can I can access it before, you know, I'm 60, but it's onerous, it's gonna cost me either money in paying taxes if it's a traditional IRA or returns or penalties or something like that. So I can you know not mind just putting something into an investment that is relatively illiquid and just you know be cool with letting it ride so i think the psychology of investing is important no matter what you're investing in and knowing that that's patient money as an investor is important downsides yeah there are a few right so it's it's not easy dealing with the ira custodians that it's hard. It's just there's back and forth. They have fees. It's it's just not that much. Uh, you know, if I could just be dealing with with my uh, <laughs> my bank and writing checks, that's much better, right? Uh, yeah. That's great. Another big downside is UBIT, uh, unrelated business income tax. And you know, obviously, nothing I'm going to say here is investment or tax advice, right? You guys need to talk to a CPA. And, you know, most basically that applies whenever you invest in something that has a loan applied to it, like a multifamily syndication. There is a tax involved. I think one of the things that is put out there is that, hey, you don't pay tax with an IRA. Well, slow down. You know, it, the, the rules are really more nuanced than that. And UBIT is the thing I had a hard time with about it was finding someone who was competent with uh, calculating paying UBIT that charged a reasonable price. Ultimately I did and, and charged reasonable rates and gave good advice. So I did find someone who, do, who does that, but it took a little while. And that tax does impact your returns. There are other retirement account strategies that at least right now do not have, uh, do not require UBIT, the QRP or SOLO 401k is a big one. Um, not everybody uh, qualifies for one of those. That is one to consider. There are folks out there who I don't use a checkbook control IRA. There are folks who use a checkbook control IRA that gives you a little more uh, flexibility with the funds. Uh, it's a little easier to, there's just less you have to deal with the custodian back and forth and everything. Um, those get a little trickier. I've received some guidance, maybe advice from some custodians that say that that might be a risky strategy. And I don't know the details behind that. Um, just that the, maybe the IRS could come calling at one point. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm, but, I, you know, does it?
0: I, I invest with a solo 401k okay. so I can speak sort of, we're not going to, we're not going to dig into details on this. Uh, it's not what the show's about, but it everything that Taylor says is true is that you, I'm not subject to UBIT and I am invested in some syndications through it. Uh, I do have checkbook control. But there is there is this constant, you know, I do have this like I'm the daddy, you know, if anybody comes (laughs) calling uh, and wants to know what went wrong, I'm responsible. Uh, The buck stops with me. And that's one of the nice things about having a custodian uh, is that they're they're there to kind of slap your hand and say, no, no, you can't do that. (laughs) If you have trouble sleeping at night over fears of the tax man cometh then, you know, maybe checkbook control isn't quite your speed.
1: On the custodian front, right, um, so I'm very active on bigger pockets. And recently, as we talk, there was a thread uh, from, from a gal who wanted to buy a rental with her self-directed IRA. And, but she didn't understand the prohibited transaction rules which there are a number of them that's another downside you need to dig into which obviously you know we're not going to cover here but just google it and the IRS has everything and you know disqualified persons and all that but she didn't understand that she thought she could get the money and run down to Home Depot and get the stuff and go to the house and fix the thing and like no no and fortunately for her the custodian she was considering you know told her that but you know other custodians I've talked with uh, maybe tend to be a little, bit, a little bit more cynical about that and say that because any custodian's first priority is protect themselves, not, you know, you, the investor. So they'll catch you with the big stuff. But, you know, you're still, you know, if if the IRS comes calling, you're still going to be the one answering the questions. You know, they're just they're kind of a rubber stamp, if you will, checking for, you know, egregious violations like that. But yeah. they're they're not fixing your problems for you. Yeah, gotcha.
0: So you invested in that in the two apartment buildings in Atlanta. What was your What was your next deal?
1: Let's see. I want to make sure I get the chronology right. Next one was a uh, deal that I helped sponsor in Amarillo, Texas.
0: Okay, so let's let's shift gears then a little bit because now we're switching from passive. Now you're on on the sponsorship side. Talk to us a little bit about how you got involved with it and what your role in it was.
1: Sure. So, wow, this is re- uh, rewinding a few years. I've spent a lot of time, you know, networking, right? And anybody who's active in this real estate space will tell you that your network is critical and and, and is everything. You know, your network is your net worth and all that. So... In that time, I met a number of sponsors and always looking for partnership opportunities. And ultimately, you know, this one uh, materialized through a relationship with with a, a, another syndicator uh, who's based in California, putting the partnership together. And uh, ultimately, you know, we raise capital for the deal. We are, you know, on the phone with the property manager uh, every Monday, talking about, you know, our next moves and evictions and renovations and all that great stuff. And, uh, you know, getting ready to position the property, uh, for potential, potential sale in the future.
0: Gotcha. And what was your, what was your role in it?
1: So I'm, you know, part of the asset management team. So we're always, you know, working on that, talking with the, uh, talking with, talking with the property manager and making plans. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I brought capital deal, but folks need to be aware of, you know, the rules behind that and, you know, not just getting paid for bringing money through the deal. I think that's, uh, always try to be very cognizant of that and that's follow in mind, the rules and everything. So. Gotcha.
0: Well, I mean, my understanding, you know, I mean, you, you can't just be the, the running gun guy out there raising money for a deal and then, you know, take a percentage of whatever you raise. Uh, this is what not to do folks. And then, and then, and then not be a part of the deal. You know, if you are a member of the general partnership, if you're a member of the sponsorship team and you go out and you get, and you bring capital, then, you know, that's a, that's a good way to become a part of the general partnership, but you have to be compensated through the general partnership. You can't be just like, you know, outside, like, Hey, under the table, Hey, thanks for bringing us that money. Uh, That's, that's called an unlicensed broker deal or don't
1: do that. (laughs) I think there are folks out there at this point, uh, doing that and I have no intent of (laughs) being one of them. So yeah. Yeah.
0: How many deals have you helped sponsor now? Two. Two. Uh, and so is the multifamily deal. And then has there been another one? Have they both been multifamily?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other one's in South Carolina.
0: Gotcha. So one in South Carolina, one in Texas. Yes, sir. It was San, I'm sorry, San Antonio. You said
1: Amarillo, Amarillo, up in the Panhandle.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so that's one of the nice things about syndication is it's it is very location independent, which we like. Have you been involved on the passive side with any other syndications?
1: Yes. Yeah, so at this point, uh, the other one that I've been in as a passive investor is a self storage facility outside of Dallas and Corsicana, Texas.
0: And how did you? You know, this is a question that I always often get from people. It's like, how do you find out about these deals? You know, and that's really because it's not like they're often, especially if they're open to non-accredited investors that are advertised. So how do, how do you go about finding potential deals to invest in passively as a, in syndications?
1: There are a lot of ways to do it. Um, I think being active on... Bigger Pockets or just joining the forums and finding out who the syndicators are and reaching out to them is the first way to get started. Uh, you can listen to podcasts like this one and find, listen to syndicators, find the ones that you think might be a good fit for you, and then take the conversation, you know, offline. Reach out to them, have a conversation with them. I think big caveats are uh, big caveats are that if somebody just because somebody's on a podcast or posts on Bigger Pockets doesn't mean that you know, they're the right fit for you or they're good in the first place or any of that. So still have to go through and do your due diligence on them and, you know, whatever you deem to be sufficient there. Folks have a lot, you know, a lot of opinions uh, behind doing that, but at least you getting that initial deal flow. From my perspective, if you're willing to do outreach and talk with sponsors, it's not that complicated. You just have to put in the time and reaching out to them and. Building those uh, relationships.
0: Ultimately, it comes down to networking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we're going to go uh, first. I want to roll back here to the very beginning where we talked about your hypothesis on flipping.
1: Yeah. So this is not, uh, I call it a hypothesis uh, very carefully because <laughs> okay. theories in a scientific sense are testable provable they're demonstrated right it's repeatable experiments i call it a hypothesis we're not going to hold you to it (laughs) right this is just just an observation but so the hypothesis is basically that the popularity of flipping tv shows correlates with the bubbliness of the single family or residential real estate market so and this is a Uh, This is largely based on the bubble pre-Great Recession when there were a lot of those flipping shows. I mean, there were a lot fewer TV channels then, right? So you have to correct for that in your mind. But that flipping was very popular. You know, people were just buying houses and leaving them empty and sitting on them for a year and making a killing. And uh, during the Great Recession, you know, a lot of those shows kind of went off the air, at least from my uh, anecdotal observation. And now many of them are back. The problem is that I think much of the country, I don't see to be in a in a bubble. I mean, there's a lot of demand for housing. There's very little development. Debt is extremely cheap at the moment. So it makes sense that housing prices would be uh, where they are. And depending on who you ask, many people still consider housing to be affordable in the US compared to uh, particularly you know, older countries like Europe, where housing can tend to be uh, much more expensive. So that's kind of my hypothesis around it. Also, because uh, personally, I, I don't consider flipping to be real estate investing per se. It's more of a operational, you know, business than buying and holding for real estate investment. The IRS considers it that way can, that uh, flipping gets different tax treatment than just buying property for rental purposes. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of it.
0: I think it's a good hypothesis. You know, I think anytime, you know, what's the expression? Zig when everybody else is zagging, and zag when everyone else is zigging. You know, I mean, don't go where, don't necessarily go where the crowd is. And if there's a TV show about something, there's probably a crowd around it. Um, so that's I think it's yeah. a good, that's a good. Uh,
1: I, I I don't have cable myself, thankfully. You know, I'm and I'm if I could have any control of any say, I'm never going to have it. Same, but I've watched a few of them recently, and uh, it seems like you know they always seem to have ridiculous numbers that they'll project they're going to sell it for 800 and then it sells for you know 1.2 million. Um, uh, but some of them I've happened to catch recently while I'm at you know family's houses or or whatever. The numbers seem to get a lot skinnier lately, which is uh, I don't know, yeah, I suppose interesting, yeah, yeah,
0: but I, I agree with you that it's you know. Things seem overpriced, but at the same time, you know, we, we know that developers shut off the, they didn't haven't been really building since the great recession. They all got spooked. They all got burned. So they haven't built. And so there's extraordinary demand for housing. And if there's a higher demand and not enough supply, I mean, it's just, and plus there's cheap money. That's a recipe for, for prices rising and I don't know when it's going to end. Um, you know, if I, if I did, I'd probably be a billionaire
1: already. So like, uh, yeah, like a lot of folks out there, but yeah, I mean, money has, you know, rates have gone down significantly for mortgages even over the last year. Right. And supply dropped because folks stopped moving unless they absolutely needed to. So that caused prices to go up in many areas. And again, anecdotally, you know, in my area, I saw something recently, uh, some data recently in, Richmond, Virginia, that evidently our, our prices are like the the price increases are the bottom 20 or something of major metros in the country, which I found a little unbelievable because we're, we're working on, you know, buying a bigger place for ourselves and, and moving and upgrading. And the market is just crazy. I mean, stuff's going, getting cash offers well over list price or, you know, getting really bid up so you know, the market is still competitive and when rates fall as significantly as they have you know, the price can go up without the say monthly payment going up considerably too that's a fairly you know straightforward calculation so i don't. Know, i think that all you know factors into to where yeah. prices are today but you know fortunately we're still seeing you know i keep an eye on uh, things like new permits new planning. Uh, where I live, and in a few other markets, and we're still seeing developers, particularly of larger multifamily properties, uh, continue to file to build new multi-hundred unit complexes, which is you know great news. Particularly considering eviction moratoriums, things like that haven't spooked out you know developers and say even more institu- institutional buyers from many of these markets. So I think those are all you know positive signs for the future. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: I want to circle back briefly before we start to wrap it up and ask you, what was it that drew you to uh, invest passively in a self-storage deal?
1: So, yeah. So self-storage is a really interesting asset class. So first off, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't found a sponsor that I liked. So to me, the sponsor is number one. With this particular sponsor, I met them through again, networking. And I I watched them do a few deals and I decided that, I watched them do a few deals. I wasn't ready, I wasn't ready for the timeline. I decided that the next one they send me, I'm going to evaluate it, but I'm doing it. I I decided I like them, I like the deals they do. I'm gonna look into it, but I like this sponsor and I want to invest with them. I happen to know it would be self-storage because they do that and RV parks and things along those lines as you know, and your listeners probably know, self storage has some very awesome benefits to it. It's, I I never say the saying, recession proof. I don't even really love recession resistant because I I think that even makes the, the wrong impression. But it has interesting dynamics that, you know, when folks get tough times hit, they have to move out, they don't get rid of their stuff and they put it in self storage and that increases demand for self-storage if you buy, you know, in the right areas. It has fantastic income to expense ratios, right? You don't have to spend a lot of money on managing a self-storage property. It's relatively easy to expand as long as your municipality will allow you to do so, and as long as there's a uh, demand there for those properties. And You know, here as we sit that the market continues to mature in many smaller markets. I think in in bigger markets, major cities, it's largely mature and maybe overdeveloped in certain areas. But I still see that there is probably most likely a lot of opportunity in some of these smaller markets with mom and pop operated properties that haven't implemented some of these new uh, collections, technologies and, you know, rent determination technology, all those things that can really decrease your operating expenses and increase your income because, again, many of them haven't implemented even basic websites. And some of them have managers on site all the time and all these things that if we can bring either as active or passive investors, if we can bring more sophistication in business systems to, uh, to the marketplace, I think there's still a lot of money to be uh, made in that space.
0: I couldn't have said it better myself. I always describe it as a trauma and transition business and you know it's um, it's people who are going through a major life change they've you know lost their job and so they're having to downsize and they have to you know move out of a bigger place into a smaller place but they don't want to get rid of their stuff. We like our stuff and then transition people, you know, migrating, moving to new locations. They're moving to a new place and, you know, they've got extra stuff. They've got to store it somewhere. And then there's the, the bonus, which is, and I don't even know how to quite describe it, which is sort of when times are good, people buy stuff. They buy toys, uh, they buy jet skis, they buy boats, they buy RVs. (laughs) Um, And so in the good times, you know, there's, it's got, Something going for it, and in the bad times, it's got things going for it. And then the other thing that I like about it is just that it—I think it—it's got demographic tailwinds behind it, which is always what I'm—I'm I'm looking for in almost anything I'm investing in long term. Meaning that you know, baby boomers are retiring; they're they're downsizing; uh, they're moving into smaller places, and they're not getting rid of their stuff. Millennials are not buying big homes, but they still have stuff and they're, you know, we're, they're getting, moving into smaller houses and, uh, and they're they're they like to keep stuff. So I'm a fan, obviously, as, as we, we talk about it often on this show. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up some of those lifestyle things, boats and RVs. I have a, I have an uncle who retired and bought an RV and, uh, maybe have the space at home to park it, but they park it at a a local self storage. I don't know what he pays per month, but it's not a small amount of money, at least in, you know, in my estimation. And, um, I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of opportunity there for investors. And I mean, it's either just, he's parking it on a patch of asphalt or a patch of asphalt with a, you know, sheet metal roof over top of it. I mean, how could you not like that as an investment? I personally, you know you never say never right i don't see myself ever being a customer of a self storage property i don't have a lot of stuff i don't like to have a lot of stuff if i don't want something anymore i just try to get rid of it or give it away or something but you know there are a lot of people out there who don't have that same preference and uh, you know we can make money by catering to them
0: all right. I want to finish off with a big, a big picture question, which is why you think it's important for people to pursue passive wealth strategies.
1: A failure to plan is a plan to fail, right? So we're really talking about, you know, one of my goals is to help people build their strategy to help start snowballing uh, their their wealth. Particularly, I don't just talk about, you know, millennials, which I'm a millennial, I'm in my 30s, right? So now it's, you know, Gen Z just starting, you know, getting started. But in the investment space, time is only on your side if you use it, right? If you get started building that wealth early, then it can compound and you'll be in a position that you want to be in down the road. I don't know whether it's disappointing or shocking or depressing or saddening. If you look at, you know, the median wealth in the country of, you know, different age brackets and how incredibly low it is to be perfectly honest. And, you know, we can, we can bemoan or cry or be upset about, you know, structural factors that may play into that, but all we can do as individuals is respond to the systems around us by hopefully improving our mindset and our strategies. Right. I mean, and, and I always try to come at this from uh, a position of honesty, right? That I had everything on my side growing up, right? I was brought up in a middle-class household with pretty pretty solid money, uh, knowledge, and management uh, abilities, and I was taught good things. And now I do different things for my parents, but I was still taught good things. They put me through college, right? I was set up to succeed, right? So I always want to be honest about that, that I had certain advantages that a lot of people didn't have, even, you know, that my parents didn't have, right, that they created and, you know, handed down to me. And I just want to help people who are in whatever situation they're in, improve and grow and, you know, build their knowledge, build their wealth through whatever they determine is right for them. I like to talk about real estate because I like real estate and, you know, that's what, that's what we discuss on my show. It's my show. You don't need to listen if you don't like real estate. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Uh, well, so talk to us
0: about your show. It's called Passive Wealth Strategy Podcast, correct?
1: Yeah, it's the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. We ask, what is your passive wealth strategy? I, you know, if you're in the wealth space, you're a busy professional, you probably learn about the FIRE movement. Uh, financial independence, retire early is generally what that stands for. Um, most of those thought leaders talk about index funds, maxing out your retirement accounts, like four hundred one k tax advantage re- retirement accounts, all those things, and that's all well and good. Like those things have their advantages. I think saving on your tax bill early is super important. Obviously, the math you know checks out in that regard but they don't talk about real estate investing because they just don't know I think many of them the advantages that real estate as a strategy can have many of them will some of the thought leaders in the space will look at you know just the annual appreciation rate on average of real estate and say okay if it's you know 2 or 3% for real estate but the SP or VT Sachs or whatever is eight or 9% a year, whatever it is on average. They say, Well, why would I invest in real estate? Well, they completely ignore cash flow. Mm-hmm. They ignore the fact that real estate is a business. We can add value, we can use leverage, we can use debt. And um, my goal is to really bring the fire community and the real estate community together or find where they already overlap and help those people who like fire like real estate and want to uh, get involved and either go all in on real estate or have some, you know just exposure to to real estate whatever makes sense for them yeah
0: well and i i'm you know i've i'm sort of in the fire movement as well on the fringes and uh, you know, and that is sort of my complaint is they're they're always they they just focus on index fund investing, which is great. And their their complaint is always a very sort of um, low level understanding of real estate. And they go, "Well, I don't want to be a landlord. The whole idea is to be pa- it's passive, passive. It's like, well, okay, but have you considered investing in a syndication?" And they go, "What? A what?" And then you go, oh, okay, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, I, I love that that's uh, part of your show. And I, I love that you're bringing that fire movement together and sort of wave, waving them over here. Hey, there's something over here too.
1: So, <laughs> so. well, if you can, if I can put on my tinfoil hat for a second, right. And, in, and I like the fire movement people, right. I can, I am part of the fire movement. Okay. But the tinfoil hat explanation for that is the, Fire movement thought leaders cannot earn an affiliate commission for referring someone to a syndication. They can earn an affiliate commission for referring you to a you know mortgage broker or a bank or a credit card company or whatever all of these things. And if you look just you know read these things, pay attention to how many other you know recommendation articles or blogs they say the top five X Y Z how many of the four of those have affiliate links related? And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't begrudge anybody, you know, making a buck. I think that just helps give a, uh, explain the blind spot. There are the sec might change some rules this year. We don't know. I'm not an sec attorney, any of that stuff, but if we see some of those rules change, I think there is a possibility. We'll see more talking about syndication in the fire movement space. Maybe I'm, you know, email lists and things like that. But um, yeah, we'll see. But, yeah. you know, I'll take my tinfoil hat off, but yeah. that, I think that's the explanation as to why.
0: No, I think that's a great explanation. It's the same reason that you don't hear a lot of um, wealth management companies talk about real estate syndication as well, because they can't make commission uh, typically on, on a syndication. Uh, and so a lot of them, you know, they don't, that's why they don't funnel people towards real estate. Well, Taylor Lote, yep. thank you so much yep. for sharing with us today. You've got uh, you've got the Passive Wealth Strategy show. If any of our listeners want to connect with you and find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, if you go to PassiveWealthStrategy.com, you can get a copy of the top five passive wealth strategies for busy professionals, particularly with a real estate investing. then if you want to get into real estate and you don't want to be dealing with tenants, toilets, and termites, I put together that list for- five ways that you can get involved it's not just syndication that is one of them but there are others and i'm not here to tell you what's right for you i'm here to present information to help you make the decision for yourself so uh, you can get in touch with that way you'll get an email you know from me and if you want to you want to talk you just respond to that and you know we'll have a conversation
0: Okay. Very good. It's been great talking to you today, Taylor. Again, uh, you know, it's been like two hours. We've spoken like two hours in like three days. We're going to have to make this a regular thing. (laughs) So I've enjoyed it
1: a lot. Yeah, no, agreed. Yeah. Same. All right, man. Great talking with you.
0: You too. Okay. That was Taylor Lote of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Uh, Be sure to check him out at PassiveWealthStrategy.com. It was great connecting with uh, Taylor again So the key lesson learned for me from this interview, which is to pay attention to when you're taking advice from someone, pay attention to their alignment of interest or their incentive structure. You know, we, we sort of touched on this right there at the end where we talked about the fire movement and a lot of the, um, the thought leaders in the fire movement, you know, if you pay attention, you'll notice that a lot of the things that they're recommending have affiliate, links in them, which means that they get some money from that and not to cast dispersions on the whole fire community and say, they're giving bad advice. I think they're often giving very good advice. And I, I celebrate, uh, that movement. Um, but it, it just brings to the forefront, the whole idea that when you're taking advice from someone, uh, even me, uh, it is important to understand that person's incentive structure, what they may be getting, uh, may be gaining from giving you that advice. Full disclosure: we make money from investing in self storage, um, so technically we have a, a, an incentive to encourage people to invest in self storage. Uh, and I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind putting that out there in the forefront. Um, I still think it's a good strategy. And I would recommend people investing in in it, even if I made no money in it anyway. So knowledge, we didn't get into specifics of, of a, a bit of knowledge that he learned. Um, but he, he, he was sort of inspired to invest in real estate by rich dad, poor dad. Um, and then he, he listened to podcasts like Joe Fairless's best real estate investing advice ever show. Um, God, I still hate saying that show Joe. And I know, I know Joe does as well because he's got to show it, say it almost every day and the bigger pockets podcast, both fantastic resources to listen to other people talk about real estate. Um, highly recommend you check them out. And then I I think he would talk about the idea of understanding that what you're giving up when you invest in a syndication is, is control, but you know, the the same thing happens when you invest in, in the stock market, you know, you don't have any control over what Apple does. Uh, you don't have any control over what Tesla does. Um, you're just along for the ride. Uh, and that's very much the same sort of thing that you give up when you invest in a real estate syndication. Uh, and, and it's a a reason that some real estate investors sort of shy away from syndications because they are people who like to have that control. And I would say that if you are somebody who is like that as a real estate investor, start to look for ways to diversify um, for, from whatever strategy you're doing, whether it's house flipping or multifamily or, or short-term rentals, um, and start taking some of your capital and diversifying it into more passive um, real estate strategies like syndications. Um, give up a little bit of that control and get your life back and you'll, you'll still get a return. It's not going to be quite as good a, as a return as, as you get from being an active investor. Um, but you also get to sleep at night. So, uh, how much money did it take him to get started in his chosen niche? He invested $35,000 using a self-directed IRA in a, a two property portfolio with, um, uh, an apartment in Atlanta. How much money did it take him to get started in his chosen niche? He got started uh, investing $35,000 in a from a self-directed IRA uh, into a two property apartment portfolio uh, in the Atlanta MSA. And, and the real key there is a lot of people think that, that they can't invest in syndications if they're not an accredited investor. Uh, meaning that they're a, uh, they have a net worth over a million dollars, not including their, personal residence, uh, or that they make over $250,000 a year as an individual or $300,000 a year as a a, uh, husband-wife team. Uh, And don't quote me on those numbers. I'm pulling them out of my head right now, and I'm not positive. I'm getting them right. Uh, But you can, if you network uh, and you educate yourself, you can often invest in some of these deals as a sophisticated investor. So seek, network with network with uh, potential sponsors. Uh, How much time do they spend on their real estate endeavors now that it's up and running? Uh, We didn't get into specifics, uh, but I can tell you that Taylor's focus is on passive wealth strategies. Uh, Taylor has a full-time job uh, in addition to all this. um, And uh, I would say that the amount of time that he spends on uh, this stuff is pretty minimal, not including his, his podcast could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? Absolutely. Um, that's one of the wonderful things about syndication is that you are giving up the control and it can be, you can do it from anywhere in the world. So once again, that was Taylor Lote of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Uh, like I said, check him out at the Passive at PassiveWealthStrategy.com. Uh, I'm Neil Henderson. This is The Road to Family Freedom. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining and let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at familyfreedom.com, and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.